Awesome. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Happy Valentine's Day. I think this is the first time Beer Talks has actually landed on an official holiday, so it's very exciting. If you didn't yet get a Valentine's Day cookie, you should get one. We ran out of beer, but not out of cookies. That's weird. <laughs> oh, and we still have some red ale, so we're not completely out of beer. Keep drinking, folks. We're going to start with... You know where to find some more beer. This is not a town that hurts for beer. We want to start by thanking the staff. They always treat us right, and they've got a busy night and a lot to do. So um, let's have it for the Windy Saddle staff. We want to thank Greg Reed for the use of the sound system, because sometimes he's gone by the time I get a chance to say his name, and we can embarrass him by clapping for him in his presence this evening. Awesome. <laughs> We want to thank the Certivants for being here because we're drinking their beer tonight and it's always fun to have a brewmaster in the house. So thank you guys for coming. We want to thank GoldenToday.com for always supporting us and promoting our events and lots of other important events around town. If you haven't been to the GoldenToday.com website, I recommend it because there's a place you can sign up and they'll send you email every day and tell you cool stuff that's going on in Golden. So um, in fact, mentioning GoldenToday.com, the webmaster, the editor and the mastermind behind GoldenToday.com, Barb Warden. Why, thank you, Whitney. I seem to be about six inches taller than you. I'm here to introduce our speaker tonight, who is Dr. John Spear. John is a 25-year resident of Golden and a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. Though buried in an engineering department and school, he is really an environmental microbiologist who specializes in life in extreme environments, having done a lot of work in places like Yellowstone National Park, the bottom of the Henderson Mine in Empire, Colorado, and Baja, California. John also thinks about research campus-wide at Mines as an associate vice president for research. He likes to ski and was probably skiing today. Nope. Uh, in Golden, he was one of the founders of the Golden Research or Resource for Education, Arts, and Theater, which was the acronym GREAT, which now lives on in the Colorado Environmental Film Festival at the American Mountaineering Center in February, which will be the weekend after this one. And it also lives on in the form of movies and music in the park, which the city took over. But it was originally started by John and a few of his colleagues. Um, I'm sure he would agree that his most important role in Golden is he's our next-door neighbor, Dr. John Spear. Is this okay, sound-wise? Hi, everybody. So thanks for coming to Golden Beer Talks on Valentine's Day. Nice to have it land on a holiday when we can all gather here. I'm going to talk to you about two separate environments that I work on. And I need to qualify uh, the things I'm going to say by, one, I'm a scientist. Two, I actually believe in, and think in climate change. And, and, and three, I'm an evolutionist. So, uh, yeah, right? Uh, put, those, put those things together. But I want to say that if you're young, being you know, somewhere in your teenage years or something, I need you to think about you're in high school now somewhere, and, and I was in high school in a place called La Cunada, California. 
And my high school was right next to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is JPL. And the reason why I bring this up is because you leave a place, you move to Colorado, 30 years goes by, and you think, Colorado is wonderful and great. I'm never going to go back to that place again. And now my high school is right next to a bunch of my colleagues. And so it's kind of weird the way the paths of life work. And part of understanding science and understanding life, I think, is understanding how the web of life connects us all. And so here's this connection. So the first site I want to talk about is work that's funded by NASA. So I need to say thank you, NASA, because without government funding, we can't do what we do. And that's an amazing thing. It might be NSF, it might be DOE, whomever it might be, but government funding does a lot for us. And so in this particular case, we are funded by a program called NASA Exobiology. And in this case, we take six plane rides that are commercial airlines, followed by a, a turbo beaver, which is a smaller plane, followed by a helicopter to get to this site. And this site is 82 degrees north, 82 degrees west. It's up on top of Ellesmere Island, Canada. It's 400 miles away from the North Pole. So in the summertime, you're surrounded by 24 hours of daylight. You get used to this phenomenon of when you should roll over in the middle of the night because if you're on your, your right side and the, the sun's coming from the west and you're getting really hot, so you roll over to your left side. But then like 2 o'clock in the morning, the sun's over here and then you have to roll back over again, right? <laughs> And so we land in this site, and really the first thing I thought about when I went to the site was, wow, this place is amazing, because we were probably, I was there in 2014, I'm going back this summer in 2017. And there were five of us there for two weeks, and I, the first time I was there and I landed and we put our tents up and stuff, I thought, wow, there is not a sound out here. There is nothing out here. It's like the ultimate wilderness on top of the earth. And I kind of had this feeling that like, I wasn't surrounded by trees like John Muir was in Yosemite, but you start to understand what the wild is really like, and the wild is there. And you have to be able to tell a story about what the wild is like. So you know, we walk around with a shotgun that shoots slugs because you're worried about polar bears. We never saw a polar bear, which is a good thing, right? Um, but the site is surrounded by many glaciers, and the glaciers are all beautiful and amazing. They are anywhere from the minimum is probably three, 400 feet thick up to maybe 2,000 feet thick. There's a lot of ice up there. But the problem is, is that uh, it's melting. And so I have a colleague from Canada named Steve Grasby, who I work with on this site. Steve was there in the summer of 2016, and our research site was actually disappearing because of melt. And the amount of ice that melted was about a cubic mile. A cubic mile is a lot of water, right? And so there's several things happening there, right? The ice is melting in the far north. There's no one there to watch it or see it. And when it does melt, does anybody care? But what's not good for me is our research site is disappearing. So this one particular spot on Earth is one place that's the best analog for Jupiter's moon Europa. Jupiter's moon Europa is a big ice ball that floats around Jupiter. And on this ice ball, it's white with ice, but it has all these fissures and cracks that go all over it. It's kind of like if you took a, a tennis ball and wrapped red thread around it in different patterns, you would see red lines. And those red lines are iron and sulfur that are coming up from a subsurface ocean underneath the ice. And so this site in northern Canada is an analog for that site. 
And there are two analogs for that site. One of them is called Blood Falls, Antarctica, which is an iron site. And it's called Blood Falls because it looks like water falling blood because there's so much oxidized iron in the waterfall down in Antarctica that it's called Blood Falls and it's beautiful. And there's people that study the iron chemistry of that. For us, it's the sulfur. So our site is 100% brilliant yellow. Like brilliant yellow, like when the sun is shining, who has the yellowest thing on in here? It's, it's, that's pretty good. So it's yellow, yellow, kind of this greeny yellow. And it stinks. So all your clothes get permeated by sulfide, right? But it's, a, it's an analog for the sulfur aspects of Europa. And so what we're trying to do with the site is understand, the first thing we do when we walk into a site is we say, who's there? And it's all microbes. And we don't understand what those microbes are. And the second thing is we say is, what are you doing? How did you get here? How are you doing it? And we just go, who, what, when, where, why, how? You ask, so scientists will say like, oh, I do this and, I, and, I, and I'm buried in this question and, and you can talk to them and they'll say, that scientist is weird because they're buried in this question and who cares? But the main thing is, it's like who, what, when, where, why, and how is pretty much how we do science. And we're trying to tell a story. And so I'll walk into a place, I'll say, who is there? What are you doing? How are you doing it? And the reason why we're studying this sulfur site is because we want to be able to put an analysis tool to better understand this site on something like a rover that would go to Europa to detect life. So we're looking for things like biosignatures. And the ultimate part of where we're getting at is um, how do you detect life? What does it mean to be alive? And so, you know, we can recognize it when we see it, right? We know that if you look up life in like Webster's dictionary, the, the, the definition is the state of not being dead. Um, <laughs> So we kind of know, what, we know what, what life is versus dead is. But how do you detect life? And this is a, you know, a multi-million, if not billion dollar question. So if we're going to send an instrument up to Europa, you want that instrument to be able to, to detect life. And so if we can send a, a box and a machine and a lander that goes to Europa, the idea is can it see something that's alive and tell you that it is? And that's something by analyzing biosignatures. And so we think from this site in northern Canada, it's not so much as there a cell present, um, and we're, we're talking about microbes, we're not talking about trees or bunnies or moose, right? <laughs> it's cells, microbial cells. Are there cells present? And you can say yes or no, um, but you can actually look at the species of sulfur that's there. So elements have species, they have different forms. There is um, graphite for carbon, and there's diamond for carbon. Those are both pure forms of carbon. And those are called allotropes. Allotropes of carbon. There are four or five allotropes of carbon. There are 34 different allotropes of sulfur. And so we think that maybe the microbes at this site metabolize sulfur that's coming from the deep subsurface beneath this glacier into a form that only they make. And so then you think, maybe the sulfur is the biosignature. And no one had ever thought about that before we looked at this work. And this particular allotrope is called S8, sulfur 8, and it's in the shape of a king's crown. So it goes down and up and down and up, and you could wear it on your head. If you could wear a molecular head piece that's a crown, right? It'd be very small up on top of your head. Um, so we think that the allotropes of sulfur are in themselves a biosignature. 
And that's what's cool about this site. But what's hard about that site is if we are losing that site, we're losing the analog for how we're going to study Europa. And that's a huge loss. And I would prefer not to have that loss. Um, so that's something that we're worried about. And I'm curious about when I go back up this summer to see what it all looks like. Is it going to be, is the ice going to be further receded or not? And, you know, a few weeks ago, I don't know if you paid attention, there's a new subway line on the Upper East Side of Manhattan that opened. Where they spent about $4 billion making this subway line. And my first thought was, wow, I wonder how long that's going to last before it's underwater. And when you're somebody like me who's been up to the north and you've seen this, that's where the water is going. If you look, National Geographic has done these representations of, of planet Earth uh, if both ice caps were completely gone. And, you know, there is no more state of Florida. The entire state is gone. And so, you know, Ritz-Carlton opens up $2 million to $40 million condominiums at their place in Fort Myers. It was in the New York Times on Sunday. It's like, wow, I'm going to spend $40 million on a condominium that's going to disappear. And the thing is, this could be happening in our lifetimes. If you are alive today, you know, you can watch this ice melt. And I'm really worried about it. So as a climate change person, this is something that I'm thinking about. Um, but I never thought that when I was going to high school next to JPL that I would be working with people who are interested in the science that I'm doing at the North Pole. And so everything that we find, they want to miniaturize a way to detect that. So there's going to be a Europa flyby mission that's already funded. It's going to happen around 2023. And there's going to be a Europa lander mission that's probably going to happen in 2031. The Europa lander mission wants to actually do something that's never been done before. They want to core the ice. So this thing would land on the ice. It would drill a five or six inch hole into the ice. And it would analyze the water chemistry of that ice. Maybe find things like the allotropes of sulfur. And that could say, ah, maybe there's life here on Europa. Or maybe there's not. And so, you know, part of what we're getting at here is, like, right now, life in the universe, N equals 1. N is here. We are 1. We know that life is on Earth. That's it. We don't know that there's life anywhere else. If N equals 2, that's going to be a revelation. It's going to, be it's going to potentially change human belief. And are we alone or are we not alone? NASA's been thinking about this since the space program started, and they've been funding this since the 50s. And we don't know where it's going to go at all. But the 50s are happening before I was born. I was born in the 60s. And I just mentioned a program that's going to go in 2031 when I could potentially be retired. But if there's a high school kid in the room, what I just mentioned might be your project. So everything that we do is generational science. And so until we find warp drive like Star Trek had and speed of light travel, which we don't have, you're going to be thinking about things on timescales that are, you know, years. And so I can be working with an undergraduate now or a high school student now, and I'll say, boy, when you're 50, I wonder where this is going to be. And it's kind of amazing, right? So it's the pace of life that we work at right now, but we're trying to understand places on Earth that are relevant to, like, elsewhere. And so NASA's been very good at this in that they are interested in what's out there and how to get us out there and, and space travel and rocket launches. And you can look at a rocket launch and say, wow, is that really important? Yeah, sure, for the purpose of exploration, it's really important. But they're spending as much money 
underneath us as they are going up. So the main thing for NASA is if we're going to understand up there, we first have to understand here. And I think that's a critical thing. Right now, I talked to a program manager just to confirm before I chatted today. I talked to a program manager yesterday and I said, hey, what's the status of NASA Earth Science funding? And she's like, well, I wish I could tell you, John. And, you know, it's like, I don't know. Um, but I think everything that NASA wants to do is great, to go up and understand Europa and do this lander and do this flyby mission and all, it's fantastic. But to better understand Earth is what we need to do. And that's the priority because that's what keeps us all alive, right? How far into my time? Good. So um, the second story I want to talk about is one that I don't know about because I've never been there. And the second story is at um, 23 North, 58 East. And this is in the Sultanate of Oman. It's on the east side of Saudi Arabia on the border of Yemen. Yemen is a banned country. Uh, Oman is not. Um, so I'm working with a team of people on a project called Rock Powered Life. And Rock Powered Life is also funded by NASA from a thing called the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is a series of collections of people around the world that think about life elsewhere. And we all think about life elsewhere. So I just introduce you to the concept of life elsewhere. And the concept of this project is to think about, okay, if there's life elsewhere, how's it living? And so not only are we looking at who's there, we're looking at how are you living there. And so in this project in Oman, which um, I'm leaving there on, to go there on Friday, and I'll be there for two full weeks, and then I come back. It's really hard to do this in the middle of the semester when you're teaching class on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But I've got classes covered. But don't tell my students who's covering it because it could be frightful, right? <laughs> um, any rate, so for two weeks, I'll be gone working on this site. And the thing that's true for Borup Fjord, up at 82 degrees north, 82 degrees west, where I just told you, and this site in Oman is that there are commonalities. So those of us that think about the microbial world, like Brian over there and me and a few other folks, we think about um, life, what does it mean to be alive? What's the carbon source? What are they eating? They need water. Where's the water coming from? They need an electron donor, which is something that feeds it fuel, and they need an electron acceptor, which is something to breathe. So those four things are very geochemically related and very geochemically tied together. So at this site in Oman, there is an abduction zone, which is where two continental plates of the Earth come together and they meet and they push up. And this particular site in Oman, and why we're going to Oman, which is halfway around the world, is that this abduction zone has been put up on the land. So Oman has some of the most interesting mountain ranges in the world because it's a place that should be under the ocean, but it's up on the land. And so we could go to the ocean and study this, but it costs a lot of money to put a ship in the ocean and then send remotely operated vehicles down below to detect your site or understand your site. So in Oman, we can drive up to it in a four-wheel drive vehicle and understand kind of some of the things that are happening in the subsurface. So we're thinking about subsurface stuff. We're thinking about the rock, the geochemistry, the chemistry of the fluids that's flowing through that rock, and who's living there. Just three things. And to do that, there's a program called the Oman Drilling Project. And the Oman Drilling Project is a $4.5 million privately funded endeavor from foundations to drill a hole down into this rock called peridotite. And peridotite is a green rock. And I brought in a, I brought in a 
sample from Arizona. So I don't know if you can all see this, but see how it's dark? And the dark part is basalt, and the green part is peridotite. And when you react that green part with water, um, it's, it's iron rich. You can pass that around. It's iron rich, and that, um, when you react a water bearing, I mean, a, an iron bearing rock with water, it produces molecular hydrogen, which is H2. And H2 is a reduced gas, and there are a lot of microbes in the world that love hydrogen. They chow it, that's their fuel. It's the thin blue flame. Hydrogen burns, right? And life burns. The fact that all of us are sitting in this room right now doing things like drinking beer and eating food and not being on fire is amazing, right? Because <laughs> we are sitting here burning too, right? We are metabolizing food and we are breathing oxygen just as a candle flame does. A candle flame is metabolizing food, which is the paraffin, and it's consuming oxygen as it does that to make water. What do you exhale? CO2 and water. What does a candle exhale? CO2 and water. So we are sitting here burning, but we're burning at one electron at a time, so it's not an open flame. And life, microbes, do the same thing. So at this site in Oman, what we're trying to do is look at the geochemistry of the water that's interacting with that kind of rock to get a composition of the kinds of elements that are present. But the beauty of that is it's not just about elements. You're looking at like stable isotopes. So you can look at carbon-12 versus carbon-13, or nitrogen-14 versus nitrogen-15. And we have nice instrumentation that allows you to fractionate and determine different elements and where they are, and that hints at the microbial activity that's there. So we'll do things like that. Um, so they're going to drill this hole, this $4.5 million hole in the ground, which is a lot of money, right? Down in Oman, they're going to pull core up, and we're going to look at that core for who's living there now, what's the geochemistry that drives it, and are things making a living there, and if so, how are they making a living there? And all this, that site in Oman pertains to Mars, because Mars has um, a lot of iron-bearing rock that has, some, you know, ice caps, some of it's CO2, some of it's water. It probably has subsurface fluids, which is water, and so if you have water and iron-bearing rock, there is already known carbon on Mars. The only thing you don't know a whole lot about is the electron acceptor. What are the microbes there breathing? And so that's what we want to kind of help with this rock is what's, what are they breathing and what are they doing down there? So we did this in, a, in the Henderson mine, which Barb mentioned when she was introduced me. And so the Henderson mine is right up here in Empire. And we... Uh, had an opportunity where we could drill a hole. Henderson Mine, do you all know what I'm talking about, right? When you go up to Winter Park, and right? It's over there to the left. Henderson Mine, you go into that hole at like, I don't know, 9,000 or 9,800 feet, whatever the elevation is there. You go down an elevator shaft that goes down 3,000 feet. When you go down 3,000, oh, and the elevator shaft is big. It holds two semi-trailers at the same time. Correct. You know it, right? It's amazing. So that place, so there's 300 miles of passage down there, right? It, yeah. What we do for metal is, is right, incredible. Um, so the Henderson mine, we had this opportunity to drill a hole down to sea level from the bottom of Henderson mine. And so we drilled a hole down to sea level, and we had this core come up. And in that core, we said, can we get DNA out of that core? And you think, no, that's impossible, right? You can't get DNA out of something like that. But if you work at it, and buffer your stuff right, and you can 
make sure it's sterile and clean, not contaminated, you can do it. And then you sequence that DNA and you're asking who is there. And so at the Henderson mine site, we found two candidate phyla bacteria that no one had ever seen before. And that's the equivalent of like walking out your door and seeing plants, right? It's very like, wow, that's amazing. Um, so we want to do that in Oman. We want to see, are there novel kinds of life living in the subsurface? But now we have better sequencing tools. And so I think computers change the world. I think we would all agree to that. You know, I mean, just the way we compute everything and the way things work and the phone in your pocket and everything else. Um, the next thing that's coming is DNA sequencing. And so we're able to sequence a lot of information for cheap. And the smallest DNA sequence in the world right now plugs into your iPhone. So you could take a piece of avocado from a grocery store, stick it in the DNA sequencer and say, yeah, it's an avocado. Okay, well, it's like, duh, I knew that, right? But if you have a strep throat and you can't swallow, you could swab your throat, DNA sequence it, and understand that you have a strep throat. But not only that, the specific strain of the strep that you have, and then you could tailor an antibiotic to hit it, right? And so that's what's going to change. And then we're worried about antibiotic resistance, which is one thing that we do in the world is look for organisms that are out there in the world and doing it and how they fight each other. Could you find a novel antibiotic? What's better than that, in my opinion, are the viruses. So the viruses are smaller than bacteria, and they're out there in the world. They kind of overlie everything that we do. It's thought that every microbe in the world probably has 10 specific viruses just for it. So there are probably 10 times more viruses than there are other things in the planet. And the Georgians, as in the Republic of Georgia, which was a Soviet-occupied country for a number of years, the Georgians were on to viral therapy before World War II. And they didn't have antibiotics, but they were like, actually, they would grow a virus in the lab and they would eye drop it right into their throat. And boom, you're healed, right, of these things like a strep throat. So viral therapy has a lot of promise, and people think it's new. It's not. It's old. You know, it's 80, 90 years old. But the problem that happened, the Georgians were very far advanced in that, and then World War II happened, and they got bombed the shit up. Bombed the, bombed the, right? And so they lost a lot of knowledge. Um, but that knowledge has power today, and I think that you need to pay attention to a few things in the world. You know, clearly, climate change is one of them in my mind. Um, but, but pay attention to things like antibiotic resistance. It's a huge worry because if we don't have these lines of defense, what are you going to do? But pay attention to what could happen with viral research and pay attention to what can happen with DNA sequencing. Now, hopefully, we're not going to get to the point where we're so dumbing down ourselves in our heads, like, I forgot what an avocado looks like, but I can put it into this thing on my phone, and it's like, oh, that's an avocado, right? And so you want to be able to get to a point where we have the knowledge of, the, of humanity, and we know how to read maps, and we know how to do things, and we want to push science forward. Um, but we want to use the tools and technology correctly. And I think that's kind of where we want to be. So these two stories, one is all about Mars. And I, is it going to get us somewhere? I don't know. Maybe I'll come back next year and I can talk about Oman after I've been there and seen it. Right now it's all in my head. And um, this trip is going to take nine people. It's going to cost us... Yeah, you know, like maybe $50,000, $75,000 to do this trip. We're camping, um, and we're going to gather samples, and we're going to bring those samples back to the lab, and we're going to analyze them geochemically, geologically, and biologically and see what we get. And hopefully all that stuff can inform the next Mars trips. 
The next Mars mission is called Mars 2020. It's going to be a hyped-up version of the Curiosity rover, which is about the size of an SUV, built at JPL in Pasadena, California, which is a $2 billion machine. So we'll see if we can inform the next Mars mission. And then I'm going to go back up to 82 degrees north, 82 degrees west this summer, see how much more the ice has melted, see if our site is still there, and try to see if we can work on these sulfur allotropes and microbes. And I think that's about what I have to say. Before we break, I think we should get our beer ambassador up here because we didn't get to hear from him yet tonight. Ambassador, would you please grace us with some of your knowledge about our beer of the evening? <laughs> and if you have some microbe stuff to throw in, we'll take it. Yeah, and you drank them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You you you've got a backup team over here. Yeah. Are you liking the beer? The beer is great. Golden City Brewery, Janine and and Charlie Sturdivant are here tonight. They were here last month, so we kind of have a program going here. And thank you very much for supporting Golden Beer Talks. Um, I guess I should have bought more beer. But I, I'm, every once in a while we have too much beer left over and it winds up with me and I'm, I'm, like, I'm reimbursing Deanne for the beer, but then I've got like six growlers of beer. Like, how am I going to drink all of this? We, we get it done. We, we somehow or other get it done. So tonight was Golden City Brewery with their Evolution IPA, and we've talked about this before, but you may not all remember, but Evolution IPA, it's always evolving. So this one's a little bit different than the last, I think the last time we had it was two years ago, was Evolution IPA. And this is a little more maltier, uh, and um, otherwise very similar, but a bit maltier and a very nice IPA. And so, uh, and then the red ale is of course a very nice red ale, which was very appropriate for Valentine's Day, so I just f figured we had to have a red ale for Valentine's Day. And the beer factoid that I had for you is about Teresa, and I had notes, but my notes have already been put away. Teresa McClara, a Harvard scholar who has been assigned by the Smithsonian Institute to be the curator in the American History Museum of beer. That's not exactly the right term, but anyway, she is following up on beer and the importance of beer and brewing in American history and how it has helped our, or how it has influenced urbanization, industrialization, and, dare I say, immigration. And and uh, she is a uh, food scholar from Harvard, so she's a Harvard scholar, and she has been. She was in charge of their local farm, uh, uh, lo local farm. Come on, what's 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 the term here? Urban farming from 2007 to 2010 in Harvard or in the Harvard area, and she's taking over this this uh, program at Smithsonian, and. And she started going through their stuff, and she was finding all sorts of interesting things in their, uh, uh, in their holdings, you know, um, old industrial items from brewing, 
old advertising from the 19th century and early 20th century. And so she was starting to put this, this stuff together to put on a display about beer and the influence it's had on our history. And it just sounded great. I had a great quote from her because she said the importance of this and it's everything that Golden Beer Talks is about. And I kind of want to go get my quote right now because I really can't remember. We can have a quote after the break. Yeah, but it, it was about how, how it drove, uh, you know, that the brewing has driven so much of our development and it's underappreciated, both food and beer, because she is a food scholar as well. And, um, uh, and I guess that's what I've got to say. Uh, but, but it sounds like, oh, and April 10th through 13th, the Craft Brewers is going to be in Washington, D.C., and the Smithsonian will be participating in this whatever event it is with the Craft Brewers Association there in Washington, D.C. I'm kind of half, half uh, interested in going and just seeing what goes on. But uh, this Ellen McNamara, she also, what's her favorite beer? And she cited a brewery in Albuquerque, which I thought, well, that's just down the road from us here. That's like we could easily drive there in a day. And she talked about this Imperial IPA, no, Imperial Porter that they've got there and how great it would be to be having one of those beers in midwinter out on this outdoor patio in Albuquerque, watching the sunset off the Sandia Mountains, uh, eating chips and salsa from a restaurant just down the street. So this has got to be someplace she's been. <laughs> and she's going to start scouring the country for more stuff on brewing history and the influence of beer on our uh, development and history. And I think we should try to get her here at Golden Beer Talks. But anyway, that may or may not happen. But that, that's what I've got to say. And... Oh, and John Hickenlooper at Wednesday, January 25th at the Colorado Water Congress, he was talking about, you know, we're the highest state in the union. We've got the Rio Grande. We've got the Platte, the Arkansas. Uh, we've got, we're the headwaters of many, many rivers here. And he was talking about how the highest and best use of water is for Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. We'll just take a short break and we'll come back for Q&A. Do you want to talk about it? Okay. All right. I'll... So, actually, uh, two things. One, the old uh, laundromat over here is apparently being purchased by another brewery, so we're going to have yet another brewery in town. So, and I just learned that today. Yeah, that'll be eight, eight craft breweries in town. Yes, that, that's my count. I, I agree with that. But anyway, that's the laundromat over here at, what, 11th and Arapahoe. My wife, said, my wife, who is correct in all things ever, especially on Valentine's Day, she says it's going to be cider. Well, I heard this from Janine Sturdivant, who's right behind us. Yes. Okay, Astor House, they are looking, they're doing a feasibility study on using the Astor House, you know, which had been like a uh, boarding house museum for many years after it was saved. Um, and they're talking about turning it into a brewing history museum. And so that's a possible use for the site. It hasn't been firmly decided yet if that's what it's going to be. 
but they're doing a, the, the city history museums are funding, I forget what it is, something like a 67000 or an $80,000 feasibility study looking into that as a possibility, which, um, uh, and then a, a competing idea is uh, using the Astor House as a territorial uh, museum, you know, for the, uh, uh, what, what, what's the right term? Okay, yeah, Territorial um, History Museum and, and Walking Tour. So anyway, but it's a possibility. It could be a uh, beer brewing museum. Certainly, we've got a lot of brewing going on in town. Does that help? Yeah, I thought it was decided. Not, not decided yet, yeah. 15 minutes or 10 minutes or 10 minute break. And Q&A. If you have some questions. Oh, arms are already waving. Dr. Spear, the que- here come the questions. We'll see what happens. All right. The bacteria that you found at Henderson Mine. Yeah. The deposit is, depending on the age dating technique, 24 to 27 million years old. Correct. Man, question number one, hard question. Uh, <laughs> this is a great question. So I think that really, um, overall, I think that life probably evolved somewhere where it's hot, where there's no oxygen. It's a reduced environment. Uh, hot being something less than 120 degrees Celsius um, and probably salty. So if we throw in hot and salty and the origin of when this like deposit was, could they have been there? Yeah, they could be that old and be that and 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 still be there. Um, the two kinds of life that we found in Henderson, we called them Henderson Group One and Henderson Group Two. And Henderson Group Two has been renamed something else, which I don't remember right now. But Henderson Group One is still Henderson Group One. It's been found in a number of other environments, primarily warm environments like hot springs uh, and salty environments. But you get at a very interesting point in that the subsurface, things are migrating by slowly. And so we call it life in the slow lane. Uh, a cell might take 100 years to divide, to become two cells. And so life, so if you want to be a graduate student and you want to do subsurface life in, in, in my lab, don't come to me and say, I'm going to cultivate something in the Henderson mind because you're going to be a graduate student in perpetuity, right? to study that thing. So life in the soul lane, probably hot, probably salty, could have evolved there and is still there. I hope, does that answer your question? I was just hoping for something a little more definitive. Yeah, so I, I, I think, maybe. so, okay, so the answer is maybe, and then the thing is, if we could invent the tricorder that Star Trek used, that would be the, the killer thing. It's like, you, you, could point, you could point at your Henderson Rock and say, ah, oh, yeah, look at that, you've been here for a was it, it was way higher, right? Um, but if it cooled down... And the water temperature that we got through drilling was maybe 123 See? That's perfect, yeah. right? That's pretty nice. Um, so 600 degrees C is hot. Where you get at the upper temperature limit for life right now is thought to be probably, well, the known upper temperature limit for life right now is 122 degrees Celsius, 
which is the temperature of an autoclave where you sterilize stuff like shrimp at Safeway or something, right? And not, not the shrimp, but the tools that you use to handle the shrimp, right? I always wanted to make like an autoclave cookbook for, like, for Thanksgiving, you know, an autoclave cookery. Um, right, correct. Um, so the, the upper temperature of the fly is 122, but the theoretical limit is probably 150. And at 150, enzymes break down, like proteins unfold, and the, you, know, you cook your egg whites, and they become white. Right? Life as we know it today. Correct, life as we know it today. And that's another problem with all this, too. Like, if we go to Mars or go to Europa, what are we looking for? Does it have DNA? Is it carbon-based life, or is it silica-based life? And, and that's where the, the cool thing about the, the Borup Fjord work in northern Canada is that you're looking at allotropes of sulfur. So you're looking at an element that could be the sign of life, not the life itself. And that might be a good thing for something like Europa or the subsurface of Mars. Yeah. Jim? That, that rock you showed, is green in it? Is there copper there too? There is copper. So peridotite has a lot of copper and a lot of iron, and, and the copper is what's making it green. Yep. Olivine. And olivine. Correct. Correct. Well said. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's like I know enough geology to be dangerous because I'm a microbiology dude, but, you know, exactly. Question? We got. You want the science answer? Or you want the personal answer? No, your personal answer. My personal answer is: I think that evolution, in the way life evolved here. The Earth is four and a half billion years old, and it's had a lot of time to drive life on this planet. Um, four and a half billion years, how, how long is that? You know, it's a long time. Um, longer than three weeks. Um, so clearly life evolved here, but really it could have started like on Mars and then come here by a process called panspermia, where you have a body like Mars that gets bombarded by its own asteroids and rocks, and that blasts stuff into space. And that stuff gets transported to here and then seeds here. And that's the panspermia philosophy. So, but ultimately, my own personal belief is I think that we're going to find life elsewhere. I don't think that we're alone in the universe. I would be surprised if it's macro life like us. Um, macro being big. I think most things are micro, things that are single cells. Um, it could be that macro life has happened somewhere else because certainly the universe is 13, billion, 13 plus billion years old and correct, and you have time for things to happen, and there could be bugs, bunnies, trees elsewhere. Are we going to see that? Not in our near universe, I don't, I don't think. But I think that, um, I think we're going to be, I think in my lifetime, we're going to find out that N equals 2. And, and if that happens, it's going to be, like I said, an amazing thing. Now, you could say right now, is there life on the moon or life on Mars? Sure, we put it there. Um, Right? Because, um, you know, you had astronauts on Mars. Not everything they did was sterile, right? We've had landers go to Mars, and they've landed on a planet. Those instruments are designed to be as clean as possible, but are they 100% sterile? No. There were things, there's, a, there's a, an organism called a tardigrade, which is a small little eukaryotic animal. They're called water bears. Google water bears and watch what comes up. They're the funkiest-looking little things. They look like a crushed pillow. Um, 
And so tardigrades are pretty amazing, but there were tardigrades that went to the moon and back on the Apollo missions, and they did just fine flying through space on their own, on the outside of the craft. They weren't inside, they were outside. And so they did the, they did the outside ride, like hanging on to the back of the pickup truck sort of thing, and, and, they, and, and they did fine. So you wonder about what things can, can tolerate and take. They did. So it's hot. It depends on where they are. Like, were they below something, right? And, and where they were, yeah, correct. They obviously weren't frying. They weren't turning into charcoal, but I'm sure some of them did, right? Yeah. Correct. So, the, like, from pictures, what I know and what I see is it's not like a hogback or a flat iron. It's like an entire mountain range is the flat iron. You can kind of see where the whole thing went like this. You can kind of visualize that. Um, and, and then it's got this funky colored rock, right, that's around there. So that's what I envision. But it's kind of a bigger system because the whole, the continental crust kind of was coming together, so it's forced the whole thing up into Oman. Oh, great question. So you do um, preliminary drilling and you rely on geologists who can like look at what's on the rock outcrops in various places. And you can kind of start getting triangulation to beeline where you think it might be cool. And then um, this Oman drilling project's been working now since mm, the last week of November. And they've drilled four or 400 meter foot holes. And they know what the core looks like coming out of those holes. And so then they're just zeroing in onto the spot where they want to go as deep as they can. And it costs a lot of money to do this. So you want to, you know, measure three times and drill once. Correct, right? Um, uh, the viral therapy is fascinating. Yeah. You bring up a great question. I think that there are so many novel viruses out there, and most of them really are host-specific. Like they'll go after a particular listeria or a particular streptococcus for your throat. So, yeah, you could go where you could worry about that because they can mutate and change quickly. Um, I don't know the, the true answer to that question. The, the, when you first said that, the first thing I was thinking about is there's a whole new arm of biology right now called synthetic biology. Uh, J. Craig Venter um, has a couple of companies. One of them is the, Drake, the J. Craig Venter Institute at UC San Diego in La Jolla, California. One of the things they think about is how do you make synthetic life, and they've done this. So they put together their own chromosome, their own DNA. They pluck out the contents of an existing microbial cell. They stick in a man-made chromosome, and they make synthetic life. And we give her a name, and the name is Cynthia. And, and, and Cynthia exists now. They actually put, um, how do you know that that's not going to be a problem? Because they put J. Craig Venter in a protein sequence on the DNA. They spelled it out as J. Craig Venter. Um, because, you know, you've got to have an attitude. And, and, uh, right? Um, so I worry about that. But ExxonMobil gave JCVI $500 million. And why'd they give them $500 million? Because they want to use synthetic cells to make biofuels to replace oil. And there's a lot of money and energy. So you could think about if I could make a better oil or a lipid or a hydrogen, I could do more with that. 
So synthetic biology is yet another thing to pay attention to besides DNA sequencing and viruses. Synthetic biology, there's a whole system out there right now. It's going to be the Nobel Prize, I would guess, this year, I'm thinking, for CRISPR-Cas. CRISPR-Cas9 is a way to uh, genetically cut out um, bases in a DNA strand so you can eliminate disease and put in a healthy gene. And it's a whole team of people that produce CRISPR-Cas. Um, pretty much, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Nobel Prize this year. Probably should have been last year. So that's coming. But that's going to allow gene editing to, if I have, um, you could make it as simple as if I have a disease that's genetic, I could clip that disease chromosome, that gene out of my chromosome, and have a healthy child. Um, I could not like my blue eyes, and I could have my progeny have brown eyes. Um, is it going to go that far? I don't know, but there's a scientific body of humans that today came out and said, you know, if you do CRISPR-Cas, it's not unreasonable to think about genetic engineering of humans. That was in the news today. Um, and they're going to do that by CRISPR-Cas. So that's something to pay attention to. It's happening in our lifetime. Um, yeah, it's an anagram. Uh, clustered repeat of... Uh, I'm hitting on Brian just because I know you, but um, do you remember it? I don't either. It's clustered repeat of blum, 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 something sequenced. Polytomy is the last word for, for P. Polytom polytomic repeats, but no, I'm going off memory. Sorry about that. And I think I just swore too, so sorry about that. Um, another question? So you're going to Oman. Right. Is that, you said that was, I, I don't hear it very well. So oh. did you say that's a subduction zone? Abduction. Abduction. So it's where the plates came together and then pushed up onto shore. So it's not volcanically active? It's not volcanically active now. No, it's dry and old. Seismically? Seismically, yeah. If there was some, like, you know, if India started to move into the Himalayas again, move into Asia, you'd probably have a little bit of effect on Oman. But not, not, not volcanically active. This is a cold zone for me. Yep. And so it's all very high and High, not, not compared to Colorado high, but high compared to sea level. Yeah, and then we drill down there. Yeah. So it's not oceanic basalts that are... They are oceanic basalts mixed in with the olivine and the pertotype. Okay. Correct. Right? Yep. So you mentioned that there were foundations who were funding the, the big bore you're going to do in Oman. I was wondering what kind of foundations, what's their motivation, what are they interested in? They're interested in funding basic science. One of them is the Simons Foundation. Um, uh, what's the other one? Um, oh, I'm totally blanking right now. They're an NPR supporter. The Robert Wood, Jan John the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is another one. Um, there are some banks that throw money at what they consider like let's let's progress science, right? <laughs> National Science Foundation kicked in a little bit called uh, through a program called the Deep Carbon Observatory, the DCO. Um, so there is some U.S. money, government money in this project. Yeah. 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 Good thing, right? Is there any oil there? Are they drilled down looking for oil so you can pull it out and you know something about the rock? So that's a great question. Um, I don't think there's a lot of oil in Oman, but they are a wealthy sultanate. So there's, they're making money somehow, right? And they're a very independent Arab country. Um, They've had one ruler for 40 years who is strict, I am the guy. Um, so as an autocracy, you know, judicial stuff, every, all matters go through this one guy and his government. 
um, and they've been a pretty stable country. But it, it's got to be fed by some energy resource, I would guess. I don't know. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Yeah. How the whole we expect to find water and rock? Probably not much oil, at least in where we're drilling. What about minerals? What's that? Minerals. Yeah, minerals could be minerals that, yeah, yeah, copper, certainly. Could be going for that. Peritite. Peritite, yep. 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 You took the you took the words right out of my mouth. Correct. Great question. So you can do this with two instruments. You can do it with X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy, which is XPS, and you can do it with EDS, electron dispersive spectroscopy. But the idea is you have to marry those two tools together. And when you do this in a lab, you know, you're talking about those two machines would fill that table. They'd be that big. You would mash this, this crust stuff down from, from borup onto a little silver disc or, you know, aluminum disc and you'd insert it and then bombard it with x-rays to get this analysis. And that works well, but the task of JPL would be to take those two instruments and make them the size of a toaster because mass into space costs a lot of money. So like when you put an astronaut up into space, it's $30,000 per kilogram. So there's a reason why astronauts are generally thin, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but $30,000 per kilogram to get mass into space and that's a lot of money. So to get something all the way to Europa, you know, the, the little lander that goes in 2031 is probably going to weigh 10 kilograms. And it's going to take at least five years to get there. So the, the amount, so you want to miniaturize everything. And then you want to be definitive when it gets there. And these are all like the geeks at JPL, the engineering geeks that miniaturize stuff are pretty amazing people. Um, which when I look back on it, they were many of my friends' fathers and mothers because that's the sort of stuff they thought about like during Viking in the 70s. And it's like, you know, there's this thing over there called JPL and what are they doing? It's like, that's kind of weird. And then now it's like, oh, I know what you do. And it's, and every, exactly. What are you going to use that for? The DNA sequencer? DNA. Yeah. Okay, so it exists. The company is called Oxford Nanopore, is the device. Um, the, it's not purchasable by most labs right now. Um, I would imagine within two years it's going to be purchasable. And it'll probably be a, under $1,000. Um, right now, right now, for my, I, I have, there's, a great, there's a cool company that sells military technology to people. Um, there's a cool company that's called, yeah, a company called FLIR, F-L-I-R. They make infrared cameras. And that's military technology that, that came out of various applications. Um, 
FLIR, you can buy a handheld camera that, that fits in your hand. You, it's got a trigger and you can like, and then you can get the temperature of the floor right there and an image of the floor. So they make one called the FLIR 1 that snaps into the bottom of your iPhone. And we use that for all our field work. And that's $249 at bnh.com. So you can get it. So you can plug this thing in and you get these beautiful thermal images. I could take a picture of this room right now and see us all sitting here. And, you know, TSA is already doing this at airport checkpoints because they see who has a fever. You know, like watch the people who are going by who's, who's hot and who's hot and who's not, right? So, but this technology is really something, right? And how we use it. And then you throw in drone technology um, where you could put that infrared camera, you know, on the bottom of your drone and then understand golden better than you ever understood it before, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Somebody back there? What's up? What quality or what kind of um, sort of satellite imaging do you get of your um, Canadian site? So you, you mentioned you're going back up there and you don't know what's been going on, but you get some of that data available? Great question. So we were using Google Landsat, which was just normal Google Earth. And then my grad student, Chris Trevetti, um, there's Digital Globe here in Colorado. And he emailed Digital Globe. He just cold emailed them and said, hey, I got this research site, 82 degrees, 82 north. Do you guys have anything and, and do you share it? And they sent him back 10 images for free. And the 10 images took a day and a half to download because um, they're big, big files, right? One of them was on July 5th of 2014. You can actually see me standing outside of one of our tents. <laughs> Um, you can't see me, you don't know who it is, but you know there's a human outside this tent. So they happened to do a flyover when we were there. And so Chris told them, because they said, well, like, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're looking at sulfur and we think it's pertinent to Europa. So now they're flying over like five times a year, six times a year, and they're giving Chris all those images. So, and they give them to him, which is amazing, right? Um, and so, yeah, shout out to Digital Globe for sure, because... You know, we can watch this ice just go melt away, right? So I'm going to try to get us, we're going to try between April and July to get one more flyby so then we know what it looks like before we get there. But those images are really something, you know, just gigantic files, but they're doing this for the entire planet. And you can buy them, you know, for X amount of money per image, um, and, but when they're sharing it, it's, it's great. And it's a powerful tool. And one of the things, if you haven't ever seen or used, is Google Earth. Google Earth is great, but you can do this lamination of Landsat photos through time. So you can pick on, let's say you're going to buy a piece of property. You can look at that piece of property from like mid-60s until now to see if that piece of property stayed the same. Was it, did it used to be a landfill, but now it looks like a home site? And so it becomes a powerful tool for daily transactions like real estate. So something to think about for sure. Anything else? We have time for one more question. One more question? Last question? Should we call it? Let's go. Right. Thank you very much, y'all. Thank you again for coming and happy Valentine's Day. Next month we have the regional bureau chief from the Associated Press here to talk about alternative facts. Yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.